0: Well, hi everyone. My name's Chris. I'm one of the associate pastors. I am the associate pastor here. There are no others. Uh, yep, there's no one like me except for that Chris over there, uh, who wants to be like me. But you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this running joke at youth group about who's the better Chris. Uh, you can you can decide later. Well, I want to begin by uh, thinking about why we go through the Bible. Yeah, if you've been here for a while, you'll notice that our normal practice is to teach passage by passage through books of the Bible. And we do that uh, because of at least three reasons. Number one, it means that we're not preaching our hobby horses every week. Now, let's just assume me and Glenn have hobby horses. Uh, If it was up to us, we'd probably be preaching them every week, but preaching... Book by book, passage by passage means that we avoid that trap. And so number two, it lets God set the agenda. And so in God's providence, we're up to Titus chapter 2 today. God has set the agenda. And number three, it forces us to preach the good bits, the bad bits, the easy bits, and the hard bits. And I'm convinced that the regular diet of the church should be teaching passage by passage through a book of the Bible. But i got to tell you, there are days like today where I wish I could just do my own thing. You know, in this passage, no one gets a free pass. It speaks to older men, older women, young women, young men, and slaves. Or in our case, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be an employee, No one gets a free pass. But God, in his wisdom, has decided that this is the text for today, and so here we go. As Glenn said, Paul is writing to Titus, and Titus is an area pastor for a bunch of churches on the island of Crete. And in this passage, Paul is telling Titus how he should instruct various groups within the church. And the particular problem is there back in chapter 1, verse 16. There is people who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. There's these people who claim to know God, but they deny Him by their actions. And in the face of that, Titus is to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Words can harm and hurt, but Titus is to seek to speak words that bring strength and healing. And as Titus teaches his congregation, they will learn to honour God by their actions instead of denying him. And so that's what we're thinking about. How do we honour God with our actions? And this sermon is part of you know, our series in the book of Titus, but it's actually a mini two-part series. In this passage, we get the actionable items. It's all about what we're supposed to do, how we're to act. And then next week, we're going to look at verses 11 onwards. Uh, verse 11 and 12 says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Notice that, that the grace of God has appeared. If this week is the kind of actionable, what we're to do, then next week is the reason why we are to do it. And so this is our kind of mini two-weeks, two-part series. If you leave today thinking this is all there is, then you're going to miss out. Next week is really important because this week is what we're to do. Next week is why we should do it. And Glenn's going to dive into that next week. But let's go through it. Paul begins there with older men. Verse 2, if you've got your Bibles... Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. It's interesting to think about, for for every group that Paul mentions, why does Paul say these particular things? Presumably they're things that matter for this particular group of people. And so why is it important for older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in endurance? Tim Chester says that it's because older men are prone to being cynical or grumpy or weary and worn out. I don't know. This is why I'm quoting Tim Chester. I have a feeling it might be true, though. But older men have seen it all before. And so the disillusionment is gone. And so the temptation is to give up and to hold back and to not care what anyone thinks. And so older men need to remember to be temperate and worthy of respect, not grumbling and complaining about everything and nothing. And they're to be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. And that's important. Sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. It's important for older men because, sorry to burst your bubble, but you've got more years behind you than in front of you. And so don't give up now. Endure. Hold the line. Be sound in faith, in love, endurance. Keep going. It's immensely encouraging to see older men who have lived their lives for Jesus just as passionately now as when they first started. So to older men, don't stumble now. Keep going. Hold the line. Be sound in faith. Be sound in love. Endure to the end. Then Paul turns to older women. Verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. And it's, again, interesting to think about why these particular things. And it's somewhat similar to the older men. there to be self-controlled, to be reverent in the way that they live. Perhaps with age comes the temptation not to care about how how you act or think, not to care about what you say, not to care about what you do, not to care about how much you drink. But this stuff still matters, even when you're getting along in years. And so particularly to older women, God's word says, be reverent in the way that you live. And don't be slanderous. You know, words can hurt. There's that that silly little rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. So women, what you say matters. Use your words to bring health and healing, not to tear down. And teach what is good. Now you've got the particular job of teaching younger women... So, verse 4 and 5, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Love, uh, younger women, uh, love your husbands and children. It seems pretty obvious and something that doesn't need to be said, but we've got to remember that this was written in the first century. And so arranged marriages were still reasonably common and it was common to abandon unwanted babies. And so Paul says, love your husbands, love your children. And even though we're not facing those specific problems these days, it doesn't lessen their importance. Think about those times where you've been home with the kids all day, you're worn out and you're tired and you don't have any more to give. It's in those moments you need to be reminded to love your children. Or or when your husband does nothing for Valentine's Day and your birthday is a little bit lame and when his spaghetti is better than yours. Love your husbands. Verse 5, be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Paul says, be pure. Be pure in everything, not just sexual purity but also moral and ethical purity. Purity in your actions, in your thoughts, in your words. Above reproach in everything. And to be busy at home. And uh, we, we read that and we think of the 1950s housewife who stays at home while the husband goes to work and so they're at home cooking and cleaning and getting everything ready for the husband's return. And that is not what this means. It, it doesn't, to, to think of it that way, doesn't line up with the culture in that time and it's not, it doesn't line up with the rest of the Bible. A, a better way to put it would be that Women are to be good managers of the household. This is not the 1950s housewife. This is the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, Proverbs 31 uh, has a lot to say a- a- about a-, a wife of noble character. But it says this, "'She makes linen garments and sells them "'and supplies the merchants with sashes. "'She is clothed with, st- she is clothed with strength and dignity.' She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So there's nothing wrong with staying at home and doing those things, but it's not limited to that. It's saying women are to be good managers of the household. So we come, perhaps, to the trickiest verse of all. Young women are to be subject to their husbands. And this is one of those verses that we don't like. It pushes uh, pushes against our culture. But it comes down to this. It comes down to whether we trust God, whether we trust his word, and whether we trust his design for the roles and responsibilities that he has given to men and women. So let me say two preliminary things to clear the ground before we think about what this means. Now, firstly, it's speaking about a wife and her husband. It's not saying saying that all women must be subject to every husband or male. This is specific to a wife and her husband. Secondly, it does not give license. It does not give license for husbands to suppress or oppress their wives. Whenever the Bible speaks about this, the onus is always on the woman to submit and subject themselves and never on the men to make them. So with those two comments, let me let's think about what it means. From the moment of creation, God gave men and women different roles and responsibilities. And men and women need each other to fulfill our God-given roles and responsibilities. We are to complement each other. But to complement each other doesn't mean that we're the same as each other. We have complementary roles and responsibilities within the life of the church and within marriages. Now, when the Bible talks about this stuff, they're the two spheres of life that these roles and responsibilities are played out into, in the life of the church and in a marriage. And so for men, the role is to lead, and for women, they are to be the helpers. And Men won't be able to do their job well without the role of the women. We need each other. We complement each other in the roles and responsibilities that God has given to us. And that does not mean that there's some sort of inferiority between men and women. No, both have the inherent dignity and worth and value. Both are necessary. Both are important. Both are made in the image of God but we need to recognize that God has given us different roles. Men are to lovingly lead, and women are to be helpers. And both those roles are important for the good of the church and for the good of the marriage and the good of the family. And we need to trust that that is true, trusting God. Now so here's more I want to say, and way more nuance and qualifications that I'd like to make, but let me make this practical for now. Now I know that this passage is speaking about marriages, but what I'm going to say applies both to, uh, both to the context of men and women within a marriage and also to the context of men and women in the church. And so here are two things. Number one, we need to trust God. We need to trust that God knows what he's doing when he says this. If he made the world and he made it good, then we need to trust him. Of course, sin means that relationships between men and women and their roles and responsibilities will go off course. And even though we might experience that, we might see it, we might feel it even though we might see the devastating effect of sin as it ruins and corrupts men and women, that doesn't mean that we can just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because men and women mess this stuff up doesn't mean that God is wrong. We need to trust God and trust that what He says is best. That's the first thing. And secondly, we need to trust each other. It does no one any good if we're always treating each other with suspicion. And so to women, you need to trust the men. You need to trust the men that God is working in them to lead well and to lead lovingly and sacrificially. Trust that they are seeking to be obedient to God and to serve him faithfully. And to men, we need to trust the women. We need to trust the women that God is working in them to be subject to their husbands and to the way that God has ordered the church. You know, Sometimes I think think that everyone is just walking around on eggshells because we're fearful that the egalitarians are going to come in and take us over and and that one day we're going to have like a woman senior pastor and, and women preaching. And so we run around scared and we don't let women do anything. And that doesn't work in a marriage and that shouldn't be the case in the church. Men, we need to trust the women that they know what they are doing and trust that they are wanting to be as obedient to God just like we're trying to be obedient to God too. We don't need to be so protective of the roles and responsibilities of the other. Rather, we should aim at being more trusting to each other trusting that both men and women are seeking to submit themselves to God and to his word. And so let's trust God and let's trust each other. From there, Paul turns to young men. He says this in verse 6 to 8. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Notice there's only one thing there that's said to young men to be (coughs) self-controlled. And obviously Titus is also to be a model of integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech and so young men are to be like that too. But let me zero in on self-control, it's come up a few times already. Self-control is not something that we prize as a culture, you know, our culture thinks that it's your right to have it all, to binge TV shows, to eat too much, to drink too much, to buy what we don't need. But one of the the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And so this is an important thing that we need to grow in. Eliud Kipochi, a a marathon runner from Kenya. Uh, He he, he held the world record for a marathon uh, recently, but it was just broken uh, not too long ago. He's a marathon runner, and to be a marathon runner, that requires intense discipline. It requires self-control. And Eliud says this. He says, only the disciplined ones in life are free. If you are undisciplined, you are a slave to your moods and passions. Now, that's a devastating critique on our binging, indulgent, unrestrained lives. Only the disciplined ones in life are free. If you are disciplined, if you are undisciplined, you are a slave to your moods and passions. We need self control. Without self control, we're slaves to our sin, slaves to whatever comes our way. But self-control brings freedom because it means that we can say no to those things. We can say no to our sin. We can say no to whatever's just coming and hitting us. We can walk away from it. We need self-control, and particularly young men. But Titus is also to be a model of integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. And, And... That's not something that young men are known for. But when you do meet someone who's like that, it is brilliant, isn't it? Notice that the quality of their character puts others to shame. You know, young men, they're always doing dumb stuff uh, that one day they'll regret. But here, the call is to... Act in a way that causes others to be ashamed of their behaviour. And so let me say to young men and to young adults and teenagers that are here, for some of you, it's time to grow up. Learn to control what you say. Be self-controlled. Earn respect. Show more integrity. That doesn't mean that you get rid of your personality. But it does mean being careful with what you say and how you say and and, and what you do. Think before you act. Become someone that people will look up to and come to for advice and help. Be what God has called you to be. And the final group in verses 9 and 10. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Now, slavery in the first century was very different to how we perhaps think of slavery. Uh, Unfortunately, slavery was one of those things that was just kind of a necessary evil in the culture. See, if we lose our jobs, if we go bankrupt, we've got this thing called Centrelink that will help us out. But in the first century, you didn't have that. And so what did you do if you, if you ran into financial difficulty? Well, you would sell yourself to feed your family. It was this necessary evil. And it's not what we would think. See, slaves, they were looked after and they were treated as family. The Old Testament is very clear that you were to look after your slaves well. And obviously the system was abused at times, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't exactly what we think it was like. And so the closest equivalent would be that employer employee relationship. And so we're going to think about that. What this can teach us about that. And there's nothing surprising here, but the surprise, uh, the surprise comes at the end when it says that they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. That as, we be good, as we're being good employees, as our boss watches us, that should make Jesus more and more attractive to them. They should be able to look at you and think, oh, they're... My most trusted employee. And weirdly, they're a Christian. But if that's what a Christian is like, then maybe there's something to Christianity. Maybe Jesus is worth checking out. Now, some of you have started new jobs recently, so let me give you my top two tips. Number one, let them know you're a Christian earlier rather than later. The longer you leave it, the more awkward it becomes. We shouldn't shrink from who we are. And so when they ask you, What did you do on the weekend? Your, one of your responses should be, Oh, I went to church on Sunday. It's an easy way of just letting them know that you're a Christian. We don't shrink back from who we are. And number two, picking up straight from the passage, don't steal. Be fully trusted in everything. And stealing doesn't... (laughs) Stealing is not just taking money out of the till. Stealing is other stuff. Like taking home a pen. That's still stealing. Or stealing time. Taking that longer lunch break than what you actually have. Uh, I remember... I remember uh, walking into work and my shift started at 8.30 and that was when I walked through the door and I said to the pharmacist in charge that day, I said to her, oh, I'm like, phew, I only just made it. And she was like, no, you're late. I thought, like, I was there at 8.30, my shift started at 8.30 and she was like, nope, you're late. (laughs) And that's exactly right. I, I fully trusted in everything, not stealing company time. I was there to start my shift at 8.30, and there I was just walking through the door. Fully trusted in everything. And so not just to do with stealing, but fully trusted in everything. And so imagine imagine the phone rings at work, and you pick it up and you answer it, and it's someone who wants to talk to the boss. And so you go, hold on, I'll just, I'll just see if they're available. And you say, hey, you know, it's what's what, you know, it's so-and-so on the phone, they want to speak to you. And they say, I oh, just tell them I'm not here. And wh- here's what you say to that. You say, I'm not going to lie for you. Because if I can lie for you, then I can lie to you. Fully trusted in everything. It's a tough passage, right? No one gets a free pass in a passage like this. There's lots of tough and lots of challenging things. And all of us, I'm sure, have things that we need to go away And work on. But behind it all is the honour and greatness of the Lord Jesus. That is what is at stake. He saved us. And one day he's going to return. And so that should motivate and shape and change how we live. If we claim to know God, then we should honour him with our actions. Let me pray for us. Father God, this is a challenging and difficult passage and there's lots here for all of us to think about. Father, please help us to honour you. Father, we claim to know you, we claim to love you and so please help us to live lives that honour you and respect you and treat you for who you are. Father, may people look at us and see your greatness, we pray. Amen.